Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This week we have Valentine's Day, so happy Valentine's Day to everybody. Also, big happy birthday to Pastor Hunter, who is celebrating a birthday this past week. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how old he is. I know how old he looks. Yay for Pastor Hunter. Pastor Hunter, in his wisdom, has been trying to get me to participate in the TCC 401k. I told him I could never run that far. Eh, eh. Matthew 5 is where we will be. The few Christmases ago at my house, I don't know if you've seen these things, but I bought my teenager one of those virtual reality machines. It's called an Oculus. You may have seen it. And you put it on and you play video games in virtual reality. Personally, I didn't see what the big deal was because he already had a video game on a bigger screen with better graphics. But I heard the kids playing with it on the headset and they were ooing and and I thought, I'm going to give this a try. So the old man jumps into the new technology and I put this thing on in my living room and all of a sudden everything changed. I was in this skyscraper in an elevator and it took me all the way up and the doors opened and there was this plank on a skyscraper and I was prompted to walk the plank on a skyscraper. I was terrified. All of a sudden, my heartbeat was racing. My voice was changing as I was trying to play it cool with my kids. And I tried to actually walk, and my legs couldn't move. I was wobbly. The game was all about total immersion. Something would jump out at you, and I would be like, very scary, total immersion. And that total immersion idea is going to sweep across Matthew 5 today when we visit the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we were introduced to the idea that Jesus came into our world as king, and he's announcing his kingdom of heaven has arrived. It's been inaugurated. And when he did this, when he came, he turned everything upside down, whether it was the expectations of the religious leaders or the world of the secular people, his kingdom was an upside-down kingdom, utterly distinct from secular society. In Matthew 4, verse 17, we see Jesus telling us the core of his gospel message. Remember what he said? He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's why today's text is so urgent for you today. Jesus says, repent. He's calling you to turn toward the kingdom of heaven and the king who lives therein. And if you don't respond, he says, you will never enter. And if you don't enter the kingdom of heaven... You are liable to a hell of fire. Jesus' words, not mine. That's why today's text is so urgent 
for all of us. So as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll be there for a while, we'll continue today. What I want you to see is that the kingdom of heaven, according to Jesus, is an immersive experience. Living in Christ's kingdom reorients the entirety of your being. Because it's an upside-down kingdom. You might find yourself wobbly or off balance or even scared. But herein you will find greater joy than you ever thought possible. So let's jump into the text together here in Matthew 5. We'll find three ways that Jesus will reorient and reshape your life. First, beginning in chapter 5, verse 17, we see that Christ reorients your understanding. He reshapes your understanding. Beginning in Matthew 5, 17, we hear this. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The first thing that we see that Jesus is wanting to reshape is your understanding of Scripture itself. Your understanding of the Bible when you see the phrase law and prophets in verse 17, that's shorthand for the entire Old Testament. You see, some people felt that Jesus came to do away with the Old Testament, throw it in the trash, make it useless. But in the strongest terms possible in verse 18, Jesus speaks against that. He says, not an iota. An iota is Greek for the Hebrew letter yod. He said, not even the Hebrew letter, the smallest of all the letters, will pass away. Or not even a dot. The dot there was just a little stroke of the brush. The smallest stroke in the alphabet of the Hebrew language. Not even that will pass away. The Bible will not fail until heaven and earth do. The Bible can be relied upon. You can trust the Old Testament. But here's where reorientation comes into play. Jesus says, you do need to reorient how you understand the Old Testament and how it is applied now that the kingdom has come. It's not changing, but you have to change how you view it and how you apply it. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the Old Testament. And now what does that mean? Well, one author said it this way, Jesus stands not in opposition to the Old Testament, but he brings the Old Testament to fruition. In the kingdom of heaven, we must understand there's a continuity, but there's a discontinuity between Jesus and the Old Testament. What do you mean by that? Well, here's an example. Mark chapter 7, 19. You might remember the conversation in Mark 7. It's about food. If you've read through your Old Testament, maybe in a Bible reading plan, you'll remember places like Leviticus 11, where God forbids his people to eat certain food, like pork. There are laws that govern what God's people can eat in the Old Testament. So why don't we follow those laws today? As Christians, we're God's people. 
but I ate pork yesterday, barbecue, it was yummy. Why is that? And people were asking Jesus these types of questions in Mark 7. In verse 19, Jesus is going to answer it. And listen to what he says. Jesus says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and it's expelled. Thus, the Bible said, Jesus declared all foods clean. So what was going on here? Well, Jesus understood what a lot of others did not. When God was making food laws in the Old Testament, different foods represented different people. In other words, some foods were deemed unclean to represent some people who were unclean. What did God mean by that? Well, think about what happens when you eat. When you eat, you're becoming very intimate. You're associating in the most intimate way with your food. It's going inside of you. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a sign of intimate association. Well, God said, I'm going to make some foods that you do not associate with to remind you to symbolize that there are people like idolaters and demon worshipers that will drag you straight to hell. He told his Old Testament people, you do not need to be intermarrying with them because they'll steal your heart away. You don't need to be all chummy with the demon worshipers because they'll kill your faith. And so he set up this food law system that pointed to the need for all humanity to be cleansed. Now when Jesus came, he broke down the barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles so that all people can be one in faith and united in Christ. In that sense, he fulfilled the Old Testament food laws. Now that Jesus comes, he says, you need to understand the Old Testament that way, it finds its fulfillment. It comes to fruition in me. This is the way he says, uh, as he continues on here in uh, verse uh, 19. He'll say, therefore, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19, it's kind of hard to tell when he said, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments. He could be looking back at the food laws and saying, you have to realize these find their fruition in me. Don't relax the fact that you see them coming true in me. But more likely, he's probably saying these commandments that I'm going to lay out on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and following, these are Utterly important. Verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, how can our righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? Those guys tried so hard at everything. Well, where they missed the mark is they did not see Christ as the center of the Old Testament, as the king of all the kingdom. That's where your righteousness will exceed the righteousness 
of the Pharisees. We must see, our understanding must be reoriented such that we see Jesus as the good authority, the good Lord, the good King of everything. I can think back to times in my life when I was just about my daughter's age and younger, in my teenage years, I can remember hanging out with my father some. My father wasn't perfect like everyone's father, but he was present. And what that meant was when I became a teenager, the man who was the authority in my house now became a bit of my companion. We might play basketball together. We might play badminton or tennis together. We might go for a walk together. And I remember this just weird, exciting feeling of hanging out with the one who also set the rules. Spending time intimately with the guy who also made the boundaries in our family. And it was wild and it was unsettling, but it was nice to be close to the good authority in my house. A just and good authority like Jesus is refreshingly freeing. Listen to how the psalmist, when the psalmist looked forward to Jesus coming as our authority in Psalm 72, listen to how he says it. He says, Jesus is like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. Seeing Jesus as your authority is refreshing. Later in Matthew 5, Jesus will use certain phrases to point to himself as the authority of the kingdom of heaven. You'll see it as we go along, like verses 21, verse 22. He'll begin by saying, you have heard that, but I say to you. You've heard this, but I say to you. Now you might know today, guys get very popular doing this kind of thing. Think about any podcast that you listen to. There's a ton of them where a guy will come on a podcast and he'll say, you know what, you've heard this political opinion, but let me tell you what's really true. We saw that in COVID, right? Everybody was turning in different podcasts and one guy said, you might hear this, but let me tell you the way to go. Why do people want to listen to guys like this who say, forget everything you've ever known, I've got the way. It's because we're yearning for a good and right authority. And think about how Jesus is talking here about God. Remember what the prophets used to say. When they had something to say that was authoritative, what would they say? They would say, thus saith the Lord. And Apostle Paul, what would he say when he had something authoritative to say? He would say, as it is written. And then he would say something with authority. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus says, I say to you. He wants to be the authority of your life. He is the king. One author, Jonathan Lehman, writes this. He says, good authority strengthens and it grows. It's, it authors, it creates. It's the teacher teaching and the coach coaching and the mother mothering. It's the rules for a game. It's the lines on a road. It's the covenant for lovers the lessons for a child, the chance to grow and expand and eventually take dominion ourselves. One of history's greatest secrets hidden by the blindfold that Satan and sin places over our eyes is that God means his authority to grow and expand us, not to shrink and snuff us out. 
God means for us to be like him, conformed to his image, rulers and authors and builders who create for the praise of his beauty and his grace. Don't think for a minute that the authority of Jesus Christ is a bad thing. It's not. He's asking you to come into a kingdom and yield to his authority, which will be nothing but a blessing for you. So he's going to go on and talk about some very specific things, but he wants to lay the foundation of everything in the kingdom of heaven. You must begin to reorient how you think. Jesus is the Lord. He is the king of your heart. He is the authority. Now let's look at a second way together, beginning in verse 21, how Jesus reorients you. He wants to reorient your understanding, but also your emotions. Also your emotions. This is what we talked about in the men's breakfast. By the way, ladies, we're trying to grow. We had some good discussion and prayer over these verses. Verse 21, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Here again, Jesus is turning the world upside down, isn't he? He begins with the familiar, verse 21 is a summary of the Old Testament teaching on murder. You can see it in Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 17. In 21, the phrase liable to judgment meant capital punishment, and this would be no surprise to any Israelite that if you murdered someone in the Old Testament, the payment was capital punishment. But verse 22 contains the surprise plot twist, the aha moment that Jesus is springing on his people. He's going to burrow down into the action of murder to the very heart of it, to find what's lurking beneath. He peels back the surface to reveal the core of murder in the kingdom of heaven. You must understand that hateful anger leads to hell. Now, if look at, at these uh, verses here, these two verses, 21 and 22, look at the word liable in the ESV. It's written no less than four times, liable, 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 liable. This speaks of unsettling accountability, doesn't it? You are accountable for your anger. Now, to be clear, He's not addressing anger at an unjust government system. That's not what he's talking about. And he's not even talking about the anger you have if you just stub your toe. Oh, That's not it. He's addressing anger that is personal. The anger you have at your children if they disobey you again and again. The anger that you have at your spouse when your expectations go unfulfilled. The anger at that girl at school who said what she said just to get at you. That's the anger that he's addressing here. We have to take a step back and ask a few questions here. Why is he addressing this type of anger? By the way, a good measure to know 
if, if you experience this type of anger, which we all do, is how long are you dwelling on something? And how often are you dwelling on something? It will reveal to you that, yes, Jesus is talking to you when he's talking about your personal anger. But the question is, in light of him talking about his kingdom and him being the authority, why is he making such a big deal about anger? How can we make the connection here? Well, elsewhere in the New Testament, in James 4, we hear the Bible authors talk about anger. So I'm going to speak from that for a moment. You can turn there if you want, James 4, verse 4. It's very helpful. You've probably heard this passage before. Here James writes this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So James is going to begin on the surface. Just like every three-year-old's tantrum that you've ever seen, James says your anger is about not getting what you really want. You don't get what you want, you're denied, and so you get angry. But then he goes beneath the surface. Look in, um, keep reading there in that same passage in James 4. He says, you adulterous people, verse 4. Now, why is he calling anger adultery? Well, he's not speaking about sexual adultery. He's speaking about spiritual adultery. James now said, you're an adulteress. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity against God, enmity with him. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself what? An enemy of God. Like Jesus, James has this two different world thing going on, two different kingdom at play. This helps us understand why our anger is so crucial to Jesus. We tend to think, it's not that bad if I just lose it. Might hurt their feelings. But I'll apologize, and I'll actually look better when I apologize, so it's not that bad if I lose it. I'm not losing any money. I'm not hurting them physically. It's not that big of a deal if I just lose it. If it feels good to me, James says, no. Here's what you're missing. Your anger is friendship. It's intimacy with Satan's kingdom. It's spiritual adultery. Counselor Ed Welch says, anger is an abandonment of God, saying that we want nothing and no one higher than ourselves. This is ultimately about your allegiance. Who are you going to be pledged to? Jesus or Satan? I read a story this week about 1995 where Muhammad Ali and some other American entertainers were invited to visit North Korea. So at that time in North Korea, the supreme leader, Kim Il-sung, had just died. His boy, Kim Jong-il, is now the new ruler. And the whole world is looking at North Korea, wondering if this thing's going to implode even further than it already has. And so North Korea has this idea, Kim Jong-il has this idea, let's throw what we'll call an international peace conference here in North Korea. Let's invite bigwigs from America over 
and let's show them how vital we still are. We're still players in a national scene. Let's just show them how great Korea is, North Korea. So that happened. Other entertainers and Muhammad Ali arrive in North Korea. And it's a bizarre trip, as you might imagine. At that time, there was a famine in North Korea that was huge. So as they get off the plane and go through the city, they see these emaciated people. They see hunger everywhere. And yet, they're chauffeured off to this huge hotel where they say in plush surroundings there and North Korea has a, a party where they have this festival for them to show up and there's dancers there's colorful things everywhere and then they say when you go in to, in to be your entertainers to do your show you're going to go to the stadium and it's going to be packed so they say okay we'll show up we've seen packed crowd before they show up and there is a hundred and ninety thousand people that's like two or three football stadiums of people that North Korea has forced to go see them. So they're cheering, but it's this weird forced cheering that is bogus, and these entertainers don't know what to think. So finally, they're ready to get out of this whole thing, and they get to the airport, and as they're getting on the plane, a North Korean official stops these entertainers, stops Muhammad Ali, and says, hang on just a second, before you get on a plane, I need to record you on camera making a statement. Americans are like, what in the world, what, what do you want me to say? And he's like, hey, just read this. And he hands him the statement, and the statement says, I hereby pledge my undying allegiance and commitment to the supreme leader and ruler of all North Korea. The whole thing was a scam, it was a sham, just to promote North Korea, just to suck you in. And Jesus today is telling you that your personal anger is like this. It entices you. It beckons you. Your anger celebrates you. When you get angry, you might hear 190,000 voices cheering you on. Yeah, tell them. Tell her about it. Yeah. But it's all a scam. The sham of Satan. He's the supreme ruler of this world, and he is demanding your allegiance. And Jesus, today in the text, says no. Thankfully, if you keep reading that passage in James, James says this, Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says, He, God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, in the upside-down kingdom, God is jealous for your allegiance. He wants you. He wants all of you. He wants you to surrender, like Pastor Sean said earlier. He wants you to pray earnestly, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done. I pledge my allegiance in my heart to you so that my desire to have my will and when it gets rocked, I won't just spew out anger. Now we see here in all of Matthew 5 that Jesus is introducing a kingdom of light and not darkness. So here's a couple of points of light when it comes to your own anger here. When it comes to your anger first, remember that it's Jesus who performs. Jesus performs. It's a glorious part of the gospel message that Jesus always succeeds when you fail. If you study the life of Jesus, 
You might see him get angry, but you will never see him get angry over a personal offense. He might get angry at society or sin, something righteous, but Jesus never gets angry because he's not getting what he wants. Why? Because he was sublimely submitted to the will of the Father. And the good news of the gospel is this righteousness that allowed Christ to never get personally angry is applied to us in the death of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says famously in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. He, he who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. At the cross, God takes our sins and punishes them in Jesus. What that means is those four liables that we saw in the text, liable to judgment, liable to judgment, liable to judgment. They're paid fully in the death of Christ. So it's impossible to celebrate him too much, isn't it? It's impossible to treasure him too deeply. When we sing our songs, go ahead and sing it from the inside, man. When we pray our prayers, focus in and give him your all. And when it comes to anger, when you are tempted and you blow it, know that Jesus' blood does cover it. He performs for you. But secondly, remember when it comes to your anger, Jesus also transforms. The hope of the gospel is that by his spirit, Christ empowers you to change. Just keep looking back in Matthew 5, verse 23. Talk about an upside down kingdom. Look at the hope Jesus lays out to you here. When he's giving you instructions it should be hopeful because he's empowering you to do it. Verse 23 said, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What's going on here? Jesus is talking about worship. We worship a little differently than altars and sacrifices. But here's the scenario. If, even if you're at church, and we're singing Jesus is better. And you think about the person here. He says brother. So he's talking about church folks. So you're thinking about another Christian here. Just never has really liked you. Ever since you've made that one comment. You felt like they looked down on you. What does Jesus say? He can empower you in his upside down kingdom. To go to that person, the onus is on you. That's why it's upside down. You would think, somebody's mad at me, they should come and we should settle. He said, no, not in my kingdom. You go to them. Why? Because reconciliation is the point. Why is that so important to Jesus? Because it shows that you have two separate hearts. Somebody's mad at what somebody else did. But they're both willing to submit to the one rule of the king, Jesus. Every other kingdom, that's not going to work. You're going to have people fighting forever. I'm not going to say anything until he comes to me. No, you got to move first. I can't believe you said that. Well, I did. That's not how Jesus empowers us 
to live. He empowers you to go and own anything you might have done to make this person angry at you so that the glory of Jesus will shine even brighter and the outside world will see, ah, that's different. Life in that kingdom is gloriously different. That's what he's inviting us to do. Verses 25 and 26 describe a similar scenario in, in regards to a lawsuit. Money's at stake. I can still empower you to go and be reconciled. Basically, Jesus is saying, as the whole Bible says, I have empowered you as your king. Now go be who you are. Live like who you have been empowered to be. Last November, a Christian writer named Ashley Kim wrote this touching testimony that I read. I wanted to share it with you. She's talking about an interaction where she had a dust-up with her mom. She said, Mom said something insensitive to me about weight gain, not intending to hurt my feelings, but with the result of magnifying one of my worst insecurities. Angry and wounded, I stewed in self-pity and resentment, replaying her words, and later... She not only apologized for what she said, but she also shared with me her own brokenness. She too had struggled with body image and the pressure to be thin. She wept as she confessed to me the pain of her idolatry and her longing to be free. She asked for my forgiveness. My bitterness gave way. Her vulnerability made me turn around and face her despite the shame I felt. And as I nodded, indicating, yes, I forgive you. We embrace and cry together over our shared struggle. Our relationship has been redeemed and restored. Such is life in Christ's upside-down kingdom. What a transforming king Jesus is. And he's calling you into this today. So in this text, we've seen how those who enter the kingdom of God kingdom of heaven have their understanding turned upside down the emotions can be reoriented now let's look quickly at another way Christ reorients you in his kingdom thirdly Christ reorients your appetites get this from verse 27 Jesus continues on in this really great sermon and he says you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is moving from the sixth commandment now to the seventh commandment in his sermon. Following his established pattern, he continues to take aim at the heart. In the kingdom of heaven, it's not just adultery that is forbidden. But it's the lust, the appetite underneath of taking something that is not yours. Wanting something that you should not have. And don't miss why Jesus lumps lust and anger together. They're kind of twinsies for a couple of reasons here. They both involve getting what you deeply desire. Not getting what you deeply desire and craving something that you're denied. Both anger and lust have that in common. And like anger, lust involves the abandonment of God. Uh, don't forget, Jesus is announcing that a new kingdom has finally arrived. From now on, you'll be choosing from the, between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of hell, the kingdom of this world. 
And Jesus is saying, through lust, Satan shackles you to his kingdom, which fails every time to deliver the pleasure that it promises. Perhaps surprisingly, stick with me, you see this dynamic of a couple of different kingdoms at work in art in our society through film in a certain genre. It's the genre of romantic comedies, rom-coms. Now, stay with me. Because think about how rom-coms usually work. There's a Ryan Reynolds movie out there called Just Friends. Maybe you've seen it. I'm not recommending it, but I'm saying the story matches what I'm trying to say. In this this movie called Just Friends, Ryan Reynolds is in high school, and he's got a weight problem, and he's in love with a girl, and he's scared to ask her out because he's insecure about how he looks. So what does he do? Well, he graduates, and over the next 10 years, he moves to Hollywood. He changes his look. He gets a cool car, he becomes an agent, and he meets and gains the affections of lots of women. But what happens to him? Can you guess? He never really gets over his high school sweetheart. He can only be satisfied if he goes back to her. Steve Carell had a romantic comedy. You may have seen it. It's called Crazy Stupid Love. In that movie, Steve Carell is a middle-aged guy, and he gets a divorce. He's going through a divorce. So he finds himself now out on the town, but he's in his dad clothes. He doesn't feel cool, and he wants to be a certain way. So he goes to a bar, and he finds a cool dude. And this guy gives him advice. He gives him a makeover, literally. And then Steve Carell spends a portion of the movie hunting down women in the bar. He now has confidence to talk to these women. He has seven different girlfriends But guess what? He finds out that his heart's not satisfied. What can only satisfy him is the love of his wife. Predictable as they may be, these movies do draw a lot of eyeballs, right? People like to watch rom-coms. Why is that? Especially Paul Sarazen, Pastor Paul, rom-com guy. Why do we like him? Obviously, I've seen him. Why do we watch these movies? Because they all teach... If you get your fantasy world that you crave so much, you still won't be satisfied. We all seem to know there's a satisfaction deeper beyond the things that we immediately crave. And that's what Jesus is saying today. I am the only one who will satisfy you. Follow my commandments. The things you're lusting over will not satisfy you. I'm the one that you needed all along, but you could not see because you were so blind. One author puts it like this. He says, I'm talking about you choosing between two different worlds, each one competing with each other, each one inviting you in and further in. One world is dominated by Satan. He's Christ's rival, but not his equal. Satan is the ultimate wannabe. The world he's building is an exciting place. Energy and passion galore. All the kids can't hang out there. The Bible said the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John 5, 19. But Satan doesn't really even care about sex. What he's grabbing for is everything. The total denial of Jesus. The total denial of the Bible. 
the total denial of everyone's dignity, so that the whole world sinks into compliant helplessness. It's total war against Jesus, total war against every hope in your heart. That's what lust is. The truth is you were made to be ruled and loved and satisfied chiefly, ultimately, by Jesus Christ. Only seeing him and heeding his commands will satisfy you. Think about Jesus talking to the woman at the well. You remember that conversation? What did he say? He, she's getting water there and he says, Ah, if you only would have come to me. I can give you living water so that you'll never thirst again. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that if you come to me today, you won't be tempted again? No, that's not what he means. He means that he is at the end. He is the ultimate pursuit of every lustful thought. In other words, if you turn on the computer wanting to lust, you're actually looking for Jesus. You're looking for the satisfaction that only he can provide. He is the living water that you're searching for. If you drink of him, you'll be eternally satisfied. 2 Timothy 4.18 says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. As Jesus continues on in his sermon, verse 29, he stresses the seriousness and intensity with which we must fight sin. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Now, he's not promoting mutilation here. That would actually defeat his earlier point that this is a battle of the heart, right? But listen to his language. He makes it powerfully. Tear out your eye. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. He's not messing around. There's a kingdom of heaven and there's a kingdom of hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, the ancient world Right hand was your, your fighting hand. Most people are right-handed now and then. Cut off your right hand if it causes you to sin. Throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members that your whole body go into hell. His exaggerations make the point, well, do whatever you need to do to conquer and fight against lust and pursue self-control. If you need an internet filter, Get it? If you need a flip phone instead of your phone, grab one. Here's some walking around mindset practical thing that I've used before and I still use today. Maybe this will help you. Liz, commit to agree with God about his beauty. Commit to agree with God about the beauty of Christ. Think about how the Father looks at the Son. Think about Jesus' baptism. Jesus was baptized. We hear from the Father. He said, I'm well pleased with him. It's because he's beautiful. Think about the transfiguration. God grants us a little bit of a picture of the shining glory of Jesus because he's glorious and he's worth it and he's beautiful. Think about the resurrection when Jesus comes back and his body you see his body and it's glorious. It's because he's beautiful. We need to be walking around 
and sane before the lustful temptation happened. Jesus is better. He's lovely. He's worth it. We need to be meditating on the beauty of Jesus Christ. One writer puts it this way. He says, you can throw your computer out the window, but it won't kill your lust. You can never go to the mall again, but it won't kill your lust. You can cut out your eyes, but that won't kill your lust. You can move to a cave in Montana, but that won't kill your lust. You can employ legalism, but that won't kill your lust. All of these things fall short because they are external amputation when you need a heart transformation. We must follow the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. What does he say? Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking what? The things above. Mentally, you must not tire. You must keep seeking the things above. Where who? Where Christ is. That's where you think on Christ. Think about the things above Jesus. He's seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on this earth. It's only through meditating on the beauty of Jesus that we will ever make strides in our hearts against lust and anger. We've seen today here as Jesus is talking that those who enter the kingdom of heaven They'll have their understanding turned upside down, their emotions reoriented, their appetites truly fulfilled like never before if you enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now there is a tone to this text that I'm not sure I've adequately captured thus far here. and It's a reality that's present in Jesus' teaching about anger and lust. Hopefully you picked it up as we were reading it. Here it is. Failing to immerse your heart in the kingdom of heaven will lead to your fruitless destruction in hell. That's the tone of the text. It's very serious. I was reminded this week in a book I was reading about John Wilkes Booth. Uh, He was the man who famously assassinated on Good Friday in 1865 Abraham Lincoln. When you read about John Wilkes Booth, he was passionate about three things, acting, pretty women, and white supremacy. Those were his joys. He had this dream of reinvoking the southern cause, a, a fairy tale land where he thought, and he said in his writings, that slavery was actually good for the slave owners and the slaves. It's a society that he wanted to raise up. So actually the day before he assassinated, the day of his assassination of Abraham Lincoln, he was walking the streets in Washington. He met the editor of a newspaper and he hands him a letter. And that letter is a manifesto of how he's going to accomplish this wacko dream of his that he's totally buying into that exalts the white man. Later after killing Abraham Lincoln, he's on the run for 12 days And he has to leave Washington and cross over into Virginia. And he finally makes it after breaking his leg. He's in bad shape, but he makes it into Virginia. And he goes to ex-Confederates' houses. And he's astonished when they want nothing to do with him. He's now the subject of a manhunt, right? 
So he goes to this plantation home there, a southern home. They said, I'll give you food, man, but you are not staying at my house. So he's so frustrated. He goes to the next house. It's the same thing. I'm not keeping you. Get out of here, dude. He ends up having to spend four days in the woods. This is not the reality he thought he was going to be experiencing. Well, he gets a guy to bring him the newspaper every day for four days. And every day he picks up the news and he reads it hoping to hear how he's been announced the hero setting off an event that will end tyranny and make the South rise again. But every day he reads the paper and he's branded a murderous coward. And he doesn't understand it. He writes in his diary, I've just got to clear my name. People just aren't understanding if they just read my letter. Well, later... When his time finally runs out, John Wilkes Booth is hiding in a barn. He thought he would end up being celebrated in a palace. Now he's in a barn. And when the Union troops come in, they set fire to the place. So he's faced with his own burning destruction. And one of the Union soldiers actually pierces through, pierces through the barn and shoots him. Shoots John Wilkes Booth right in the neck. Actually, the same side where Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by God's providence. Well, they pull him out because they didn't want him to die. They wanted to question him about his whole conspiracy. But he was paralyzed from the neck down. And he's standing there in his dying moments, laying there in his dying moments. People are standing around him. And he calls out to the Union troops. John Wilkes Booth says, could you just lift my hands for a moment so I could see him? And they're like, all right, crazy person. They lift his hands up in front of his eyes, and he can only mutter the words, useless, useless. Since then, scholars have disagreed whether he was just talking about the hands that pulled the trigger, now being paralyzed and useless, or if he was talking about his crazy plot to create a twisted fantasy world. I tell that story because Booth's immersion in the kingdom of his own making led to his own burning destruction. And according to Jesus, failing to immerse your heart in the kingdom of heaven will lead to your own fruitless destruction in hell. Jesus is calling you to come today. The truth is there's only two choices. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of of hell, and only one will satisfy you. In a book I read by Ray Ortland, he retold the story that C.S. Lewis told in his book, The Silver Chair. You might remember that. If you don't, that's fine. Part of the story involves a girl named Jill who's wandering through a forest. And she's been wandering a while, and she's very, very thirsty. And she comes across a water brook and she starts to run to the water brook to drink her fill. But then she sees there an enormous lion lying by the water brook. And this is where we pick up the conversation. Listen to what she says. As she starts to run forward, she stops. And the lion says to her, are you not thirsty? And Jill says, I'm dying of thirst. The lion says, then drink. She says, may I, could, would you mind going away? While I drink, uh, the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. 
as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. She said, will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I come to you, said Jill. The lion says, I make no promise. Jill was so thirsty now that without realizing it, she actually took a step nearer to the brook. Then she asked, do you eat, little girls? The lion said, I've swallowed up girls and boys and women and men and kings and emperors and cities and realms. It didn't say this as if it were boasting nor as if it were angry nor as if it were angry or sorry. It just said it. And Jill said, I daren't come and drink. The lion said, then you'll die of thirst. And she said, oh dear. She took another step closer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. The lion said, there is no other stream. And the truth from our text today, from Matthew 5, is the lion who is also a slain lamb, Jesus Christ is calling you to drink of him because there is no other stream of life. What you're looking for when you give in to your lust and your anger will not sustain you. It will not satisfy. It will fail time and time again. Jesus is calling you to himself. Repent and come into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we pray. We pray a prayer of surrender, even though we know our hearts are frail. We know our commitments are wobbly, and still we turn to you. We don't want the kingdom of hell. We want the kingdom of heaven. In our minds, we know Jesus is better this week. I pray that you convince our hearts that Jesus is good. He's better. I pray that you reorient all of us, our understanding, our emotions, our appetites, so that we see Jesus as king this week. God, I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.